Hey, what's up, everybody? Sean in here. Welcome to this episode of the Tips from Crit Podcast, your place for quick tips about pre-hospital emergency and critical care transport medicine. In this episode of the podcast, I'm introducing a new series I'm calling the Flight Crit Lecture Series, where I'll be publishing to the podcast lectures that I give at local conferences. This lecture was recorded February 6th, 2019 at the Estes Park Critical Care Conference in Estes Park, Colorado. The topic of this lecture was the good, the bad, and the ugly, ketamine for the critically ill patient. The audio quality of this lecture is not great, but I think you'll be able to hear it just fine. This will not be ketamine. Um, I was going to have you guys all stand up and stretch a little bit to kind of clear your brains because at the end of the day, um, I'm not going to do that because you guys just had a really good day. Have a really nice uh, break. <clears throat> so again, my name is Sean. Uh, if you have any questions, you can email me, shawflightman.com. I'm happy to answer any questions uh, that might come up after, uh, after the presentation. Um, like I said, conflict of interest, I told you my only one. Uh, I don't do this for any financial gain. Passion led us here. That's why we do this. We come to conferences like this because we're passionate about what, what we do, and we want to make uh, the best decisions for our patients along the way. This is kind of how I felt when I was told that it was going to be a two-hour lecture on ketamine. And I kind of felt like I was falling down this crazy ketamine hole. Uh, I felt like somebody was giving me a dose of ketamine. So, um, if you don't know these guys, this is Salim Razier. This is Ruben Strayer. Of course, most of us know Scott Winger. These are the kind of the guys that are giving this kind of lecture. So, it's a little intimidating to come and speak to you guys on a topic that usually um, these kind of guys are talking about. I don't claim to be an expert about critical care, and I don't claim to be an expert about ketamine. But what I've noticed is that there's a pretty significant um, lack of discussion, conversations about how do we use this drug in the pre-hospital setting or the transport setting to best serve our patients. So that's really what I wanted to do today, is I wanted to have a conversation with you guys to, to talk about how you're using the drug and uh, some of the fears that you may have uh, uncertainties you may have about the drug, kind of dispel some of those, and then um, figure out how do we best adapt the, um, the current studies or research. I, I hesitate to say studies because there's really not a lot of true studies going on um, with ketamine. Uh, but take that information and apply that to um, our, our practice in our hospital care. So, um, so like I said, I just want to kind of dispel some of the fears for the uh, for the next hour and a half. Have a just have a have a discussion, and I promise I'm going to try my best not to dissociate you during this lecture. Uh, okay, a couple questions here. So, uh, show of hands, who has ketamine in your guidelines? Okay, about a third maybe. Uh, what are you using it for? Are you using it for pain? Yeah. Are you using it for RSI? Using it for anything other than those two. What are you using? Side sedation. Side sedation. Agitated delirium. Is it specifically for those agitated delirium patients? Uh, anybody who's combative, combative or more, just pretty much disagreeable. Okay, so like a like a hypoxic combative. Could be. Maybe if you wanted to sell it that way. Yeah. Okay. All right. That's kind of how you read the report. We had some sure high that we've given it to. For those of you who are using it for pain, what's your dose? 0.3 mix per kg. Anybody else doing uh, anything other than 
0.3 mg per kg? 0.5. Okay. What about RSI? What, what's your dose? Two mg per kg. Glad to hear that. During this presentation, uh, I'm hopefully going to convince you that those 0.3 mg per kg for analgesia and the one mg per kg for sedation is the wrong way for us to be dosing this medication. Um, we'll get to that again. Okay, a little history about ketamine. Does anybody know where ketamine came from? Ketamine is a derivative of PCP. PCP was developed in the late 50s um, for um, anesthesia, um, for battle, um, battle injuries. And it had a lot of the same properties that ketamine has. It was great at dealing with pain, it was great at dissociating patients. Um, but, of course, we all know PCP's got this really bad, ha bad side effect that causing people to go crazy. Right, so in the early 60s, they started re-engineering ketamine to make those, uh, those emergence phenomena, those psychosis phenomena, a little bit less severe and uh, less uh, uh, shorter in duration. And that's when they did ketamine. So over the years, ketamine's gone through a, a number of kind of highs and lows. Um, in, the early, uh, in the late 60s, it was being used uh, for, battle, uh, uh, for like, field anesthesia during the Vietnam War. Um, and then in the 70s was when it started to become uh, popular for recreational use. And that's when it really started to get bad rap. Uh, as the years went by, they started finding more uh, uses for ketamine um, from all things like neuro, um, neuropathic pain to complex uh, regional pain syndrome. That should be reversed. Um, basically, some kind of neuro, it's a neurologic type pain. Um, antidepressants, okay? All the way through, um, more recently, in 2013, ASAP, or the American College of Emergency Physicians, um, started recognizing ketamine as being an effective drug for procedural sedation and analgesia in the emergency department. 2017, they then uh, enacted policies that said this is also safe for analgesia, and that was, um, early, or uh, very quickly adopted by the Emergency Nurse Association as well. You didn't know this, in 2001, or 2018, January 1st, 2018, Colorado Chapter 2 finally adopted ketamine into our Chapter 2 guidelines, and they made it a non-wavered uh, medication for the critical care presidents. So if you are licensed by the state uh, with your PCC, then it does not require a waiver by your medical director. Okay, so what I'm trying to show you is that it has, it has evolved to become a more accepted medication uh, in our industry. And as you are finding out, more and more physicians are getting on board with ketamine um, for the pre-hospital use, and we're starting to see waivers pop up uh, all over the place to allow us to use this medication for so many uh, new uses. This here is uh, just uh, kind of the chapter two guidelines that you can see down here uh, under the critical care formula and ketamine, and they don't specify what, what you can use ketamine for. So it's basically whatever your physician wants to write into your policies. Um, and it just states here that basically your physician advisor is responsible for providing education 
that will bring your knowledge base up to uh, an appropriate level in order to be able to safely utilize this drug. Alright, so what is ketamine? Anybody tell me what ketamine is? It's a sedative, yeah. It's an analgesic. How does it work in the body? Dissociates, right? What does dissociate mean? Takes you the long way. <laughs> we'll talk about that in a minute, yeah. Ketamine technically is classified as a non-competitive NMDA receptor antagonist, okay? NMDA is an acronym of like everything else in, in this industry. And this here is kind of a graphic representation of what an NMDA receptor is. These are receptors, these are ion channels, primarily in the nervous system. And what happens is they're non-competitive because they have this, um, this uh, allosteric binding site right here. The typical um, trigger for this gate to open up is glutamate and glycine. And there's this separate binding site that ketamine can come into, and it can basically block the activity of this channel. Okay. What this channel does is it allows cations to flow across and transmit signals within the central nervous system, um, brain, and spinal cord. Okay. So that's what it is. Here in the, in the spinal cord, and here primarily in the limbic system, um, it's pretty complex where the, these particular receptors are found, but uh, in the thalamus, which is right here, and then the whole limbic system, which is responsible for what? What's the limbic system responsible for? Communicating um, sensory input to your cortex where it's then stored as a memory. So if these signals are blocked here, you can't form memories, okay? Who remembers your afferent and efferent nerve tracts? What's that for? What's that? Yep, and afferent are your sensory nerves, right? So your sensory nerves are in this dorsal room. This is where these uh, NMDA receptors are also found. So these NMDA receptors help transmit the signals from your peripheral nervous system, from your peripheral nervous system to your central nervous system, where they, they if they're shut down, they block here at the cord. And then you're, they're also blocked here uh, within the brain, so you can't form those memories. Essentially, you're completely separating the peripheral nervous system, your sensory input organs, from the central nervous system where that information is interpreted, right? You interpret pain, you interpret uh, visual input, you interpret sound. When somebody is fully dissociated, they call this, um, there's a term of sensory deprivation, where the patient their, their ears are working, their eyes are working, um, their sensory organs and their fingers are working, but that signal cannot get to the nervous system and to the brain where it can make sense of it. Okay? So they have complete isolation of, um, of sensory input. The beautiful thing about that is, remember where I said these NMDA receptors are? They're up here in the limbic system, right? There is no effect to your uh, brain center where your respiratory center is. So this is why patients who are given disassociated doses of ketamine, it preserves their respiratory drive. There's no suppression of your respiratory center down here in your um, pons and medulla. Okay. Right. They're essentially awake but unconscious. These patients, oftentimes their eyes will be open, but they will not respond to you. 
So after the event of ketamine, we start figuring out like this is a really good drug that we could use um, in, in medicine. There's always this push, like how do we classify this drug, right? So they looked at the two typical classification groups, um, one of them being general anesthesia. And, and it's definition is up here, but basically with general anesthesia, they say they're unconscious, they don't have any sensation of pain, right? That sounds good, that's what we talked about with ketamine, but there's typically a loss of ability to preserve uh, or to maintain your respiratory drive, your gag reflex, right? So that doesn't work with, with ketamine. So then they started to look at a sedation. Well, they said, okay, minimal sedation, um, it, it produces uh, anaphylosis um, and leaves apprehension. Okay, that's good, yeah. Um, Depression of consciousness, sometimes, yeah. They can still respond, not so much, because when patients are really dissociated, they don't respond uh, to the stimuli. Then down here in deep, deep sedation, they talk about depression of consciousness, may not be able to maintain their airway reflexes. That didn't work either. Okay. So that's when they came up with this definition, dissociative sedation. They're dissociated. It's a trans-like cataleptic state characterized by profound analgesia and amnesia, if, you're, if you're, your sensory organs cannot transmit that sensation of pain to your brain, you have no way of uh, to, uh, detecting it. So there's complete isolation of pain and amnesia. The limbic system is blocked. You cannot form those memories with retention of the protective uh, airway reflexes. The, the, the brain stem is not affected. Beautiful. So that is where this definition of dissociation, uh, dissociative sed uh, sedation comes in. Okay, I want everybody to, uh, we're going to do a little exercise here. I told you this is going to be a conversation, so you'll just get to stand. I want everybody to close your eyes. Everybody close your eyes. Promise me you're going to keep them closed. If you don't keep them closed, keep your mouth shut, and don't ruin it for the rest of the people. All right, with your eyes closed, what am I holding in my hand? Why can't you tell? Okay, go ahead and open your eyes. <laughs> the fat. This is in honor of where Nestus, where they moose, and this actually belongs to my son. He's a daycare. So I stole it from his bed. Um, right, that is an example of dissociation, right? The fact that you couldn't see that I was holding a moose in my hand doesn't change the fact that the moose wasn't there. You had no memory except for the fact that you then opened your eyes. That. That I had a moose in my hand, right? You, by, by closing your eyes, you are dissociating your brain from your eyeballs, from the stimuli, right? Your brain and your eyeballs from the stimuli, right? That's essentially what's happening with ketamine. Okay? It's turning off, it's pulling the, sh the blinds over your central nervous system and preventing you from forming those memories. Make sense? That's why our patients can have profound uh, injuries, and when we dissociate them, they have no memory of that. We can put in chest tubes. We can do surgical cracks, things like that. And they have no memory of it. Kind of a weird picture, too. Kind of like that, though. So um, this is called the good, the bad, and the ugly. Ketamine for the critically ill patient. We are going to go through um, kind of the good, the bad, and the ugly of ketamine. Because it's not the wonder drug, right? So the good things about ketamine, right? You all know it's really great analgesic. You know it's got really good sedative properties. It's anesthetic, meaning it, it, it perfect. Uh, provides good analgesia and, and um, lack of um, memory formation. Um, antileptic, anti-epileptic, 
Right? They're finding that it's pretty effective at blocking seizure. We're going to talk more about that later on. The current um, research right now with ketamine, and this is not really going to affect us in the pre-hospital setting, but the finding is really effective um, as an antidepressant in, in managing and treating PTSD and chronic migraines. It's pretty amazing. Some of the other properties about um, ketamine, it is a sympathomimetic. We know that it's a, a very potent bronchodilator, although uh, the mechanisms by which that works is a little bit unclear. The, the evidence hasn't quite vetted out whether or not that's just simply um, a catecholamine response or if it's uh, the old, it, an actual property of the ketamine itself. Um, it does seem to have some kind of anticholinergic properties in some studies, although as we're going to talk about um, in a little bit, it can cause some hypersalivation. And like I mentioned, it preserves respiratory drive and protective airway and reflexes. So these are all really good things uh, about the drug. Key is, is the delivery. How do you deliver it? Do you deliver it by IV push, IV drip, intranasal, intra, uh, intramuscular? It can even be given uh, orally. We're not going to talk about oral ketamine um, because it's not, one, it's not appropriate in, in our setting, but two, uh, the bioavailability of the drug is uh, significantly decreased with oral administration. Um, it's what they call a first-pass drug, where it gets profoundly me metabolized. Almost 80% of the drug is transformed um, the first time it goes through the liver. And so that's why we avoid these oral uh, administrations of ketamine. All right, so before we start getting into some of the specifics of the drug, I do want to talk about this thing called the dose-response curve. Anybody heard of the dose-response curve? The dose-response curve is basically a, a correlation between the dose of drug that we give somebody and the response that we intend to get, to, to see with that drug. And every single drug has a dose-response curve. Okay? As the dose goes up, we expect to see an increase in the expected result up to the maximum efficiency. Now, some drugs don't plateau. Some drugs will continue to go up. And what we end up seeing is things like respiratory depression, hypotension, um, things of that nature. This is just a comparison showing you a little bit more, kind of illustrating these different dose response curves. You see here drug X and drug Z basically have the same response, but drug Z requires a significantly larger dose versus uh, X and Y, basically the same dose achieves different responses. Okay, so it just kind of illustrates the dose response Here's the dose response curve of propofol, and I use propofol for a reason because we see it a lot in transports, and, and I personally don't like propofol in the transport environment, um, and we'll get to that a little bit more, but that's why I wanted to fill this in here. But you can see how with propofol, um, you know, here's the dose response curve up to a point, and, and this is concentration within the blood compared to probability of no movement, so once concentration reaches what, about 10, micrograms per ml, we basically have a 95% chance of not moving. And then when they combine propofol and rumefectol, uh, you can see how it changes the dose response curve of your drug. Well, ketamine has its own response, dose response curve also. And despite how, uh, how much I looked, I could not find a true dose response curve for ketamine. Um, but this is a graphic that was put out by Ruben Strayer. He's an EM doc that uh, runs EM updates. And I just thought it was really cool. Um, 
if you've given ketamine, you're probably aware of the dose response curve. We know that in those smaller doses, it's more analgesic in nature. At the high end, we have this dissociation. And in between these, we have these two um, kind of gray zones. The recreational zone, which is where they were dosing kind of in the 70s when people were experimenting with ketamine. And then what I like to call the danger zone, I promise I'm not going to play any music from Top Gun. I was tempted, but I decided that's been well overdone. Um, is kind of up here just before you get to this dissociation phase. Now, I talked about propofol and how propofol's dose response curve kind of tends to uh, not plateau like some of the other ones, but kind of continues up. The beautiful thing about ketamine is once all of those NMDA re uh, receptors are blocked, they can't become more blocked. And because it doesn't work on the peripheral nervous system where you get vasodilation, you actually get you know, some vasoconstriction and increase the sympathetic tone with ketamine. And because it doesn't affect the respiratory centers, um, like other drugs like fentanyl, morphine, Versed, so on and so forth, when you actually, once a patient becomes completely dissociated, that's it. The more drug you give, it just tends to prolong the duration of the intended action, which in this case is dissociation. You do start to get some more uh, side, side effects of, of ketamine do start to show up a little bit more once you get up here into these larger doses. Okay, So let's talk about these doses. 0.1 to 0.3. This is your typical analgesic dose. Beyond that, 0.2 to 0.5 is your uh, recreational dose, where you kind of get that hallucination, it's kind of nice, kind of fun. 0.4 to 0.8 is that partial disassociated range where, um, and I'm happy to share this slide deck with anybody if you want it. Um, so I don't have a problem with that. Um, 0.4 to 0.8 tends to be that partially dissociated range where the brain is still able to kind of take in some of that sensory input, but it's not able to fully make sense of it. Uh, and then up here, greater than 0.7 is where you get into that dissociated state. Now, what do you notice about these ranges? There's overlap, right? So if you're dosing somebody at 0.3 milligrams per kilo for pain, you're pretty close to that partially dissociated range up here at 0.4 to 0.8. Likewise, if you're dosing at 0.1 milligrams per kilo for dissociation, for induction, you're pretty close to that upper limit of partially dissociated at 0.8 milligrams. They're finding, depending on the patient, the dose range fluctuates a little bit on what kind of uh, what kind of response you get. Okay, we're going to talk a little bit, um, a little more. Uh, remember, I said I feel like if you're dosing at 0.3 mg per kg for pain, or point uh, or 1.0 milligrams per kilo for dissociation, I, th I I believe you're doing it wrong. And I'll talk a little bit more of that uh, down the road. Okay. So your typical IV dosing uh, in, that we're going to be using is 0 0.1, 2.3 milligrams per kilo, like we already talked about, and then um, for uh, induction, 1 to 2 milligrams per kilo. Those are your, these are IV doses, typical IV dosing. Okay. When we start talking about uh, intranasal or, or uh, intramuscular, the dosing changes. Analgesic dosing, like I said, 
0.1 to 0.3 milligrams per, per kilo. This is IV push. What they found in, in looking at the studies, when they compare 0.1 to 0.3, in the lower end, you get um, not quite as good sedation or analgesia, but basically zero side effects. That's the beautiful thing about it. Uh, when you get closer to the high, higher end, 0.3 milligrams per kilo, that's when you start to get a little bit more um, uh, of the subtle side effects, kind of the dizziness, a little bit of nausea, um, not, not dissociation, not partial dissociation, when you're going to start you're having these weird um, you know, hallucinations. But patients just sometimes don't feel right. They feel like they're kind of out of their body a little bit. So what they started looking at is, well, how can we, how can we change the way that we're delivering this? It started off anecdotally. Some uh, providers were saying, well, listen, if I give the drug slower, my patients don't complain about these type of side effects. So um, they've done a number of studies, and what they've looked at is you can get as good analgesia with 0.3 milligrams per kilo in a 100 cc, uh, cc bag, running over 10 to 15 minutes, with zero side effects um, when compared to uh, like morphine. Okay? It's, it's comparable. So, if you have one, and, and so where they're finding this is very beneficial, especially in today's opioid crisis, um, where hospitals are really clamping down on the administration of opioids. Um, or patients who are on uh, chronic opioids, like chronic pain, or you've got abusers. Ketamine um, works a little bit differently, and so they can still get this analgesic property from the ketamine. They're also finding that it will, um, for those patients who are um, chronic uh, opioid users, where they basically kind of downregulate their sensitivity to the opioids, uh, ketamine will actually increase uh, their sensitivity, so you can then give less opioids. So uh, some hospitals are using this synergistically with opioids, um, and other places are finding that uh, it can be used as a single therapy, which is really excellent. We're going to run through some scenarios at the end. Um, I know that we've got some, um, I saw some rain, uh, some of the guys from the park here. I don't know if they're still here. Yeah, I see one of them back. And then any, anybody else that, I know you gang from Estes Park, you guys uh, will sometimes go into the park, right, and help with following um, patient care, right? So I have some recommendations for you. So 0.3 milligrams per kilo over 10 minutes in a 100cc bag. Um, they're also finding that you don't need to run this on a pump, right? It reduces the amount of, uh, amount of equipment. If you guys are running you know, down the hill and you've got a patient you know, who's, got, you know, who's, uh, who's got some kind of pain, broken pelvis, whatever you want, take, you know, take your ketamine, put it in a 100cc bag if you've got it in your guidelines. Um, and run it in over 10-15 minutes and then it gives them prolonged sustained analgesia. Uh, I probably should practice this at the beginning. None of this is to say you guys should just go out and do this right off the bat. Of course, this has to be part of your protocol. Like we talked about at the beginning, it has to be either wavered and it has to be written into your guidelines. So the whole purpose of this was to kind of open up the line of communication um, and kind of get you, get you thinking about how we might be able to use this drug a little bit differently than, than just agitated delirium or induction. Yes, Steph. John, in any of your research during um, this, did you see them ever nebulize ketamine? I, I did not. I have I've heard anecdotally about that on some of the various FOMED podcasts that I listened to, but I've not found any papers addressing nebulized ketamine. Also, have you figured out why it increases the effects of like the narcs? So I also work at NCMC in the ER, 
and Dr. Khan and I did an induction to reduce the shoulder. Mm -hmm. And he actually had about oh, probably 75 seconds of apnea mm -hmm. with the ketamine. Do you think it's from the narcs he got earlier? Or like why? Uh, it could be. We One, were all kind of taken back because we didn't expect. Yeah, yeah so I, I am going to talk about that, but I'll, I'll, address the, I'll address your question. So one of the side effects of ketamine, especially if given too quickly, is apnea. It's a known uh, adverse uh, effect. Now, typically speaking, it's none of the studies that have um, sh shown apnea as a side effect have d determined that it is significant in any way, shape, or form. Right. Nobody had critical desaturations. Nobody required intubation as a, as a result of the apnea. In a few cases, they just proceeded with the RSI sooner because that was their that was their, their intended sure. path. Um, but in in the setting of procedural sedations, um, there have been no adverse effects of the apnea associated with ketamine. It's typically given. It typically occurs when doses are given in excess of two milligrams per kilo, and when they're given much quicker, so less than sixty seconds. Um, as far as that relationship with the, um, the opioids, none of the research that I found has specifically pointed out a reason why it, it reactivates those opioid receptors. But it's reasonable to think that if somebody has gotten a large dose of, uh, of opioids ahead of time and then they receive ketamine, it, it could potentially be uh, kind of the, the increased dose of, of opioids. Something to be aware of. Generally speaking, if they're giving ketamine, they're giving like 50 to 25 to 50 percent of the normal dose of opioids that they would, they would give uh, if they weren't giving uh, ketamine along with it. It's a good question, but thank you. Mm -hmm. Steph, I'll try to follow up with that. Thanks. Yeah. I skipped, I skipped over the kind of recreational dose here because it's not really anything we're ever going to need to be worried about. If you happen to overdose your patient a little bit and they move into that recreational dose range, fine. They're like, oh, this is great. Cool. Um, no, I'm not foul. Um, danger zone. Right? This is the partial dissociation range. Okay? This is that 0.4 point. This is very close, right? So uh, very close to that upper limit of your analgesic dose, very close to the lower limit of your, um, your fully dissociated dose range. Okay? This is, like I said, where the brain is kind of connected, but it can't fully make sense of the sensory input that's coming in. Anybody recognize, like, what's this from? Batman, right? That uh, was appropriate. Freaking people out. Then you have your one, uh, one to two milligrams per kilo. This is a fully dissociated state where they are, the lights are on, but nobody is home, right? This is where their eyes are still going to be open, but they are checked out. They've got no, no awareness. No, they cannot feel pain. They cannot hear. They cannot see. Um, they can move, and you will see them spontaneously move sometimes. It is not like they're not responding. They're not uh, responding to any kind of painful stimuli. It's just a known side effect of the drug. They will sometimes have jerky movement. It kind of looks like a, like a clock type action. You can reposition them. So if you don't like, you know, if their heads are on one side, you can take these patients and you can reposition their heads if their airway is in a better position, and they will maintain that position. So you can re you can move them around. It's it's great. Yeah. 
So that was IV, uh, IV catenary. We can give intramuscular as well. Right? Primarily, this is going to be given for those agitated delirium patients, okay? those combative patients that just want to fight. Yeah, they're, they're hyper uh, adrenergic states where we have to gain rapid control of these patients for their safety and for the safety of us. Typical dose is three to five milligrams per kilo given into a large muscle. Uh, I've even seen it given directly through the clothes. Okay? So the point here is you've got to get somewhat control over them. You don't want to be fighting with them to try to get an IV. You do a big dose, you give them IM, uh, and within 30 to 60 seconds, they're fully dissociated, and they're generally dissociated for anywhere between <coughs> 5 and 20 minutes. Plenty of time to get your restraints on, kind of interrupts that hyper uh, hyperadrenergic state, and now you can then get some benzos on board and try to keep them sedated and get them through that, that, uh, that emergent situation. I don't really have a whole lot more to say about that. There's not been any report that I've seen um, that would suggest the sympathetic or the catecholamine release associated with ketamine has any effect on these uh, agitated delirium, these hyperadrenergic uh, uh, state patients. Um, not seen that. There, there is, there have been some reports about cardiovascular collapse after getting um, uh, uh, ketamine. We will talk about that in just a minute. Intranasal, 0.5 to 9 milligrams per kilo. Now, I put this in here because uh, that dose range, that 9 milligrams per kilo, because that's what ASAP, uh, ASAP is referencing. I'll tell you that I've seen really good uh, response to intranasal ketamine in pediatrics in the lower dose range, the 0 0.1, 0.3, 0.5 on the high end. Okay, I've never... Um, seen or heard of anybody having to go as high as 9 milligrams per kilo intranasal. Um, however, that's what ASAP is talking about. That's what ASAP references. So, why would we do this intranasal ketamine? Well, primarily we do it on kids. As you will see maybe down the road, we might try it in seizures, although um, by the time we get to this, we shouldn't have IV access. Um, it's predominantly used for procedural sedation in kiddos uh, in the ER um, for minor laceration repair, uh, setting a dislocated or fractured uh, limb, anything that is not going to require long-term IV access, but we don't want to give them, um, I'm sorry, we don't want to subject them to a, a distressing uh, procedure. You know, it doesn't matter how we dress up our IVs. You know, oh, he's a teddy bear. It's going to be okay. No. Like, they don't see this. When a kid sees you come at them with a needle, this is what they see. Right? So my suggestion is give them the darn teddy bear to cuddle up with, and then give them a little shot of uh, intranasal ketamine. It's going to chill them out. It's going to take the edge off. Then you can do the procedure, whether that be starting an IV, uh, whether that be debriding a wound, irrigating a wound, um, you know, reducing a fractured wrist if you're part of that. It's going to preserve the respiratory drive. It's going to take the edge off. And um, kids don't have any of the side effects, the, like the emergence phenomena that we hear about with, uh, with adults. It just doesn't happen in kids. Um, 
Yeah. Zero risk of complications. They even go as far to say that procedural sedation for, with ketamine for pediatrics in the ER doesn't require any advanced monitoring. You don't need cardiac monitors. You don't need um, uh, O2 sats. You don't need any of that stuff. You just need one person to perform the procedure and another person to, to observe uh, the individual. Um, what did I want to say about it? There was something else I wanted to say about that. Uh, Yes. Yes. So, and thanks for bringing that up. I was going to get to that. Um, so, there's two ways that these emerging phenomenons can be corrected or managed. Okay. Um, hold that thought. Let me get to that um, in, in a little bit. I will address that. Um, basically, what I wanted this was it's not all rainbows and butterflies, right? I got I a six year old girl who loves rainbows and loves butterflies, and this kind of looking little psychedelic, so it kind of seemed appropriate for me. Ketamine is not all rainbows and butterflies. There are some side effects that we need to be aware of. Okay? The big one is being laryngeal spasm and hypersalivation. And you mentioned apnea. Increased myocardial O2 demand and decreased um, um, sympathetic tone. Okay, let's talk about laryngeal spasms. Laryngeal spasms for ketamine. The incidences, the incidence of this happening are exceptionally rare. The studies uh, say it's about 0.3% in children and even less in an adult. So while it can happen, it's exceptionally rare. You need to be aware of it. Give, give the patient a dose of ketamine and come back you know, a minute or two minutes later and all of a sudden they've got um, you know, striders and, and their, you know, their respiratory distress has gotten even worse. Um, <clears throat> this is why in kids, uh, they say ketamine is contraindicated in pediatrics less than three months old. Okay? Only two absolute contraindications for ketamine. Allergy, less than three months old. There are some relative contraindications like um, uh, heart failure, um, acute coronary syndrome, um, coronary artery disease, things of that nature. Um, and it's not, it's not because of the ketamine. It's not contraindicated in kids less than three months old because of the ketamine. It's contraindicated because of their airway anatomy being so much smaller. If they were to have uh, an incident of laryngeal spasm, it basically is just so, it's so much worse that they just say, don't even risk it. If you were to actually see an incident of laryngeal spasm uh, in a patient that you gave Kevin to, the way you're going to manage this is gentle positive pressure, might be BVM with a, with a PEEP valve, CPAP, it's not, the, the larynx doesn't slam closed so tightly that you can't get air past. Just need a little bit of constant pressure. Typically what happens is you're going to have to proceed to RSI. Now, I just heard about this Larson's point. Anyone, our, our IC nurses, anybody in here heard of Larson's point before? I would never heard of it until I started researching uh, this, this, uh, this presentation. Larson's point, I want everybody to, to feel along their jawbone and go up as high as you possibly can, kind of like you're going to do a jaw thrust, but even higher, right right where you hit the, the team joint, and right behind the earlobe. That is Larson's point, and if you push in on that soft tissue and forward, 
the, the thought is that there's a pressure point there. Cause a lot, large support of the laryngeal spasm notch. And there's pretty good anecdotal evidence from ER physicians and anesthesiologists that say if you push on this spot on both sides, um, within a couple breaths, it should relieve that laryngeal spasm. Yeah, Bo? The answer to that's going to bilaterally. What I've read is bilaterally. Both sides, push as hard as you can. Forward. They're not sure if it's just it's just because of um, uh, the fact that you're doing a jaw thrust, but it seems to be specific to doing a, uh, a jaw thrust with pressure on that particular point. They think it might be related to a pressure point there that re that, that relaxes those uh, the larynx. Larson point might save you from having to move to our side. Just something to put in your, your bag of tricks. Okay. Hypersalivation. Hypersalivation is another one of those side effects of ketamine. We know about it. How do we manage hypersalivation in our typical patient? Huh? Suction, right? What's the big deal? Well, I mean, the only thing is, if we're, if we're actually going to do an RSI, and now they've got like all these secretions in their mouth, then, you know, we're like, oh, okay, I, got it. I wasn't expecting that, I gotta get my suction out. In the ER, they'll use things like atropine. You might try that. Not that it uh, is in most um, most protocols. I've not seen protocol, you know, atropine in a protocol specifically for hypersalivation associated with ketamine. It's not that. It's not that common. It's uh, and it's typically in doses greater than two milligrams per kilo, two and a half to three milligrams per kilo IV. They have to use that. They they use some medicine when they uh, were bringing those kids out at night. Because they had to have them dosed up on ketamine for hours, uh -huh. and they had to redose it. But they they had them on a, a mask to go mm -hmm. the water, and they give them something. I don't remember what it was, but they give them something to keep them from hypersalivating. Could have been glycopyrrolate, which is uh, glycopyrrolate. That's what they'll use in, in the OR, anesthesiologists. And the doctors will use glycopyrrolate as well if they're going to do like an awake uh, intubation. Um, for the patient who's still conscious and sitting upright, they'll dry their mouth out, give them a dose of glycopyrrolate before they'll dissociate them, just to keep everything nice and nice and clean. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I don't have really anything else to say about that except we manage patients all the time who have contaminated airways. Right? We suction, we do what we can, we position them. Not no, no harm, no foul. The only thing is, is if you are treating a patient um, with ketamine for pain, it might be something to be a little bit aware of. Okay, just so that it, you know it doesn't catch you by surprise. Apnea. Okay, we mentioned you mentioned apnea. Typically, like I said, apnea is a known side effect of rapid large doses of ketamine. If you're sticking with that that one to two milligrams per kilo, you're giving it over sixty seconds. Typically, we don't see this. If we do see apnea associated with ketamine, it's typically very short lived. 75 seconds, a minute and a half, that's, that's longer than I've heard. Usually 15 to 30 seconds, there's usually no uh, desaturation during that time. If you're starting to get, get uncomfortable with the fact the patient's not breathing, give them a couple of gentle breaths with BVM. Usually within, like I said, 10 to 15 seconds, they'll start breathing on, your own, on their own, and then you can proceed with your, uh, your procedure. They're gonna continue to remain dissociated for anywhere from five to 20 minutes, depending on um, their individual hemodynamics, the normal, their individual blood chemistry, and, um, and their uh, hemodynamic status. 
Okay, mentioned increased cardiac, uh, or I mentioned that, um, you know, in the beginning of this section about cardiac ischemia. So there have been some reports of patients suffering sudden cardiac arrests associated with uh, induction doses of ketamine. Not really sure why this happens. Um, the suspicion is, from, from looking at the literature, is that it is, it is associated more with the increased myocardial O2 demand um, as opposed to the actual drug itself. That patients who have a history of coronary artery disease, maybe they're having an MI, something along those lines, you give them the ketamine to induce them, they get a big surge in uh, their catecholamine, increases their myocardial demand, and then they, it basically propagates their MI and they go into cardiac arrest. That's what the literature is currently looking at. There is some uh, suggestions out there that there's some kind of a, a negative uh, inotropic effect of ketamine. So you're basically blocking the influx of uh, calcium through those ion channels we talked about. Um, and somehow that's actually affecting the myocardium, <coughs> causing a decrease in inotropy. Um, but what they found is when they compare potential decrease in inotropy from the drug with uh, the, uh, the increased sympathetic tone uh, associated with the catecholamine release, that the catecholamine release basically blocks that inotropic uh, depression. So increased cardiac ischemia. So that's why myocardial um, uh, AMIs, cardiac, uh, any kind of um, acute coronary syndrome, um, and uh, coronary artery disease is one of those relative contraindications for giving ketamine. Okay? Now, obviously, if you've got somebody who's altered, you may not know that that's what's going on with them, um, and, then that, and that's why it's a relative contraindication. There's also been reports of hypotension um, associated with uh, ketamine. And from everything that I can, I can make out, and there's not a lot of really good evidence to explain this, because when they look at the, the, the administration of ketamine in the OR with patients who are on full hemodynamic monitoring, what they find is that there's actually an increase in cardiac output. There's an increase in um, systemic vascular resistance. Um, and so this sympathetic surge actually increases their blood pressure. What I have been able to kind of deduce from all the papers that I've read is, and just kind of through anecdotal discussions, is I believe that this has more to do with blocking of the, the intrinsic sympathetic surge that we have when we are in extremities, right? If we are in severe pain, or if we are in, uh, you know, our bodies are in that fight or flight mode, we have these huge adrenaline dumps, right? And then you come in and you take away somebody's pain or you sedate them, what happens? They lose that sympathetic surge. And even though the ketamine induces a little bit of increased sympathetic tone, I don't think that it's gonna be enough to combat the intrinsic sympathetic surge. And that's why you get a decrease in blood pressure. So if somebody's really running on, you know, running in the red, they're really amped up, trying to maintain their cardiac uh, cardiac output, their coronary perfusion, their hemodynamic status based on, you know, whatever's going on, maybe the hypovolemic, and everything's clamped down, and then you take away that sympathetic drive, it makes sense that there's they're probably going to drop their blood pressure a little bit. So, just another reason why we need to, and if we're going to be giving ketamine, we need to resuscitate before we intubate, right? I always want to make sure that our patients have gotten necessary fluid, we've got pressors ready, if we have push pressors, 
Make sure you have that stuff ready because even with something that's supposed to be hemodynamically stable, we can still have drops of blood pressure. Okay, any questions so far? We've talked about the good stuff, ketamine, the bad stuff, ketamine. Anything so far before we move on to the ugly stuff? All right, emergency syndrome, partial dissociation, and awake paralysis. So remember we talked we talk about emergency syndrome, and I talked about how we've got this uh, dosing continuum. Okay? When we give somebody a dose of ketamine, ketamine is very lipid-soluble. It binds, and it can pass through that blood-brain barrier uh, very quickly. The plasma concentrations stay very low. It binds to um, the receptor sites in the central nervous system through the blood-brain barrier, and we get rapid blockage of those NMDA receptors. These patients move up through this whole continuum. They move up through it so quickly that we don't even see it. Problem is, is the medication starts to be metabolized. They come back down through this curve as well. And that's when we start to see this partial dissociation, the, the emergence phenomenon. The emergence phenomenon is nothing different than partial dissociation. We just see it when they are emerging from their dissociated state. Well, if we're giving a patient this drug uh, in the field, especially those of you who might be doing uh, RSI, you know, at patient bedside, and then transporting to the local ER, if you're getting to the ER in less than 20 minutes from the time you perform the procedure, you're probably never even going to see this emergence phenomenon occur. It's when you have these prolonged transport times, or at the hospital, you say, oh yeah, I RSI the patient with ketamine. Great, they're going to, hopefully, if they're thinking, they're going to be expecting that as this patient starts to metabolize that ketamine, they might have this emergence phenomenon. How do we manage this? Okay, we'll talk about that for a sec. The studies have shown that benzodiazepines, whether it's percent, volume, adamant, whatever it may be, is very effective at blunting that emergence phenomenon. Um, now, there is some debate whether or not it should be given uh, at the time of induction, or or uh, what's what we're seeing happen more commonly is that. Doctors in the ICUs and the ER, they're waiting until the patient starts to emerge from their dissociative state, and then if they start to experience these, uh, these undesired effects, these hallucinations, then they'll give them the benzos, mostly because they want to save, you know, save benzos. Like, why give a drug to somebody who may or may not need it? It doesn't occur in every time. I think they say it occurs in about 20% of patients who get ketamine for dissociation. They will have some kind of uh, uncomfortable side effect as they start to emerge from their dissociated state. Generally speaking, it's like 0.5 to 1 milligram. I think anywhere from 0.5 to 2 milligrams of Versed. Um, small doses just kind of takes the edge off, and it essentially eliminates the the, uh, the emerging syndrome entirely. Questions about that? Did that answer your question, Lynn? Yeah, I was just commenting. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Do the patients, do they remember any of that stuff as we're coming out? If you don't, if you don't treat it, they can absolutely yes. Because the brain is starting, those receptor sites are starting to open up, the limbic system is starting to work, and they will form memories. So do they still Crazy memories. They come out the way that they went under? Say that again? Do they still say that they, came, they come out the way they went under? Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of how we can help manage this. If they're doing an induction in the ER, they will try to put the, talk to the patient, encourage happy thoughts, calm reassurance, reduce the stimuli, turn the lights down. That doesn't always work in our environment. So the few times that, um, that I've given, I, I say that kind of the, 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 
standard approach to benzos with ketamine for um, for induction is to give it as they're coming out. However, uh, I, I thinking about one time when I had a, an individual who was suicidal who tried to actually climb out of my helicopter at 2,000 feet above ground, and we had to aggressively sedate this individual with ketamine. And uh, knowing that he was probably going to have a bad trip coming out, I, get, I did give him some benzos um, as he was going into his uh, his ketamine-induced state, and from everything that I you know, heard, he was pretty good coming out. This is not practical in our environment, right? If we're going down the road or we're in a, you know, we're in, we're in less than ideal condition where these patients are not going to be in their happy place, right? So the reality is we need to make sure that we're, we're talking to our, our receiving physicians or we are anticipating the need for benzodiazepines whether we're in the back of an ambulance, you know, out on the trail or in a helicopter. Okay, time for another exercise. Guy on the left. How much do you think he weighs in pounds? We'll keep it easy. 180? 190? Yeah. And I did actually, so I was able to actually find actual weights for these patients. Um, and I kind of rounded. Um, but 180, 190? Actually, 210. If you dose this guy at 180, where are you on that dose response curve? You're low. What about Harvard? Let's go over the middle. 35. 30, 35. Oops, hello. 40 pounds. What about the gal on the, on the end? 130. 130? 140. 140? 140. 140. 140. 140. 140. 140. 140. 140. 140. 140. 140. 140. 140. Because we're going to come in, we're typically going to come in under. But if you may, if you're estimating weights and you estimate over, you're going to be up into that partially dissociated state. Most of the time, we're giving. And, and here's here's what I'll say about analgesic dosing. Right? If you do underestimate, no big deal. You can give them a little bit more. If you overestimate on, on pain, then that's when you're going to start getting into some problems. But when we're dosing these patients at one milligram per kilo um, for induction. And we underestimate their weight, we're gonna we're actually gonna be putting them into partially or sub-disassociated dose range. This is why I believe that when we're dosing patients for pain, oops, hello. I talked about that. When we're dosing patients for pain, we go small. We go 0.1 mix per kg, and we can always redose. If they didn't quite get enough, we go 0.1 mix per kg again. If they start to say, oh, I feel a little weird, stop. If we're gonna, if we're dosing them for induction, go big. Go 1.5 or two milligrams per kilo. That way you're gonna totally avoid that partial dissociation state. With in, keeping in mind that you are more likely to have some of those side effects. Okay? Now, if you do underdose somebody, of course you can always just you know, give them another bolus. 
So just keep that in mind. One intent, I left this, like, I put this up on its own slide. Is this going to on? One intent patients experience uh, awake paralysis post intubation. This was uh, from a study from uh, uh, 2016. Inadequate sedation and therapeutic paralysis. Okay? That's kind of scary to me. Intubation, this was taken from the most recent um, edition of the Paramedical Journal. Intubation using rocuronium increases the patient's risk of wakeful paralysis. Okay. That makes sense, right? Paralyzed longer. And we're all giving, um, we're all giving rock now, most, most of us. Ketamine's duration, 3 to 20 minutes. Pretty good. Now look at the, the duration of paralysis for, uh, for ketamine, or for uh, rock urine. 35 to 45 minutes. Vecuronium is even longer, 40 to 45. So we need to be thinking about during our pre-intubation state, if we're going to be giving ketamine, they're going to be they're going to be in, uh, they're going to be dissociated for longer. So don't fall into that um, that that uh, false comfort zone of oh I've got time, I've got time. Like it's hominate, really. Like we know you know it's going to be gone in a couple minutes. We've got to be getting on post intubation sedation. You should be planning your post intubation sedation during the pre intubation phase, so that once the patient's uh, intubated, the tube is secured, you're ready to go with your um, your post intubation sedation package. Whether that be fentanyl versed, whether that be propofol, I don't like, or ketamine. We're talking about ketamine infusions, okay? Because ketamine can be given, you can redose it, you can also run it as an infusion for post intubation sedation. Don't let your patient be that one that is, is awake and paralyzed. It's terrifying. So, like I said, fentanyl versed is the most common um, medication that you guys would probably, and I say you guys, I'm sorry, I shouldn't necessarily say that, but. 911 uh, field staff uh, are going to see um, for those uh, intubated patients that you might use for your intubated patients. Coming out of the hospital, we're going to usually see propofol. Now, my experience with propofol has been they're in the ICU or they're in the ER, doing great. They got the time, they got it, um, they got it dialed in just the way they want it. The patient's comfortable, they're not moving around. And then as soon as we start messing with them, as soon as we move them to the transport environment, they've got all this additional stimuli, all of a sudden the propofol is not enough. And they start moving around, they start bucking the tube, next thing you know, you turn up the propofol, and then you're dropping their blood pressure, and then they end up riding this roller coaster. That's why I like personally, I like ketamine for continued sedation very closely. 0.1 to 1 milligram per kilo per hour. If the patient has just recently been induced, they still have that large bolus in their in their system. Those NMDA receptors are blocked. You can then just maintain that with 0.5 mg per kg per hour. Works really well. I've done it uh, dozens of times where I used to fly down in uh, New Mexico, and the patients uh, did excellent. We never had a problem. If the patient is being transported on propofol, remember propofol is not an analgesic. These patients frequently need um, analgesics delivered along with their propofol. And so now you're running into these combination of medications that can affect their hemodynamic status. We also know that ketamine is a direct anotropic suppressor. I'm sorry, that propofol is a direct anotropic suppressor, whereas ketamine uh, tends to give them a little bit of a bump. So how do we apply all of this to our practice? Right? I've given you a lot of information. We're about an hour. 
not gonna not gonna run too much longer. Maybe another thirty minutes. Uh, so this gentleman here, David, heat exacerbation COP. Talk about pre-oxygenation, right? What do we what do we do pre-oxygen? Why do we pre-oxygenate? Does improve outcomes, yeah. And all patients less than 95% should get um, pre-oxygenation. This is time to hemoglobin desaturation, okay? Uh, what you'll see here in obese patients, no, uh, normal, moderately ill, I'm sorry, this is a normal child, moderately ill, and then normal adult, okay? Their O2 stats are 100%, you can see how quickly they fall off. I would, I would argue to say that in a a obese patient who is also sick, you may only have 30 seconds to maybe 90 seconds of, of good oxygenation time before they fall off that, um, that oxygen curve. Could be even a shorter length, say for 15, 10 to 15 seconds. This is what we pre-oxygenate our patient. So the goal here is complete arterial tissue venous, uh, O2 saturation, um, and, and complete nitrogen washout. We all, we've probably all heard all kinds of podcasts and, and read studies and heard people talk about delayed sequence intubation, and that's essentially what we're talking about. For pre-oxygenation, we'll make sure we're seeing these patients up, nasal cannula at 15 liters, loud rebreather at 15, use a peep valve if necessary, if they're not coming up, three, minute, three minutes of tidal volume breathing, meaning the normal tidal volume for three minutes, or it will say eight um, vital capacity breaths, eight to 10 vital capacity breaths, that blows out all that nitrogen. Um, let the patient breathe through the bag. Positive pressure ventilation only if their respirations are inadequate. All right. Um, this is talking about adequate peak, which I'm not going uh, to cover right now because we're talking about ketamine. How does this relate to ketamine? Right. Remember we talked about this gentleman here. He has, David has um, acute exacerbation of COPD. He's hypoxic and he's agitated. So we cannot probably get masks on this guy to get him preoccupied, right? So this is where this delayed sequence intubation comes in here. And this is ketamine for procedure, is a procedural sedation for the procedure of preoxygenation. We can use ketamine to facilitate calming him down and letting us preoxygenate this guy. Facilitate preoxygenation in the setting of agitation, preventing preox, right? We don't want to just go ahead, paralyze these patients and go ahead with our RSI because they fall off the curve and they have a critical desaturation. Now they have anoxic brain injury or they go to the you know, V-fib. Why do we say 95? 92 is another critical one. You look at this curve here, low risk critical desaturation. As they fall, this is the SPO2 versus PAO2, the correlation. Right? We're saying that a patient who's at about 90 to 92, we say this is 90, come up here, this is 95. You can see right about 95, 92, their PaO2 is still above 60. That's where we want our PaO2. But once their SpO2 starts to drop below 92, they fall off this curve, their PaO2 has a critical desaturation. They fall off this oxygenation curve. Okay? We can't measure PaO2 without a gas, but we can measure SpO2. Now, a patient who is more sick, more critically ill patient, they will fall off this curve a lot faster. So if we've got a patient who's hanging out here at 92, 94, and we go ahead and we RSI them without adequate pre-oxygenation, what happens is they fall off this curve really fast. And now we have a defib arrest and they have you know, um, 
uh, a critical deoxygenation event. That's where pre-oxygenation comes in. We need to optimize their oxygenation so that they don't have these events. We can do that with ketamine to try and uh, facilitate that oxygenation. One to 1.5 to 2, essentially what you're doing is you're giving your induction dose of ketamine early and getting your masks on. You've got 5 to 20 minutes of, of time in order to get them pre-oxygenated, get all of your equipment set up. Then, once you're ready to go, you've gotten a good 3 minutes of pre-oxygenation and nitrogen washout, then you can go ahead with your RSI. Push your paralytics. You don't need to, do, you don't need to worry about redosing your ketamine because they're already dissociated and unless you've had some reason where you've gone way way long or on your your setup or the patient's got some weird patho you know, uh, physiology or um, uh, metabolism where they're burning through the ketamine um, much quicker you should have plenty of time to facilitate your RSI without having to redose them. just a quick review here I kind of combine two slide decks here. Once those two sats reach, reach 95, then you start to three minutes of nitrogen washout. Here are some of your pros. Improve patient safety, like you said. Reduce risk of gastric inflation because the ketamine allows them to continue to breathe. You're not bagging these patients. They are breathing the 100% oxygen that you're delivering them with, with your positive pressure. Um, but you're not bagging them. That's the beautiful thing about ketamine. Like I said, it preserves the respiratory drive so they will breathe through through the drug. <clears throat> there are some cons, like we talked about. Requires a little bit of additional time, risk of drug reactions, underdosing, which we already talked about, hypersalivation, just be aware of it, suction after suction when you're ready. Laryngeal spasms, if they were spasm, a little positive pressure, move, move ahead with your RSI. All right, I have a couple scenarios here, um, and, and then we'll kind of, and then we'll be we'll be done. This kind of helps us put this into perspective. Uh, National Park guys, and anybody who goes into the park, this one's for you. So this is Chris. Uh, Chris is a really outdoor, a really active guy. He likes mountain biking, rock climbing, uh, ice climbing, you name it. Chris does. It, okay. What's that? Walks by the beach. I didn't hear that. Walks by the beach. Walks by the beach. Yeah, maybe so. Cooking. Hey, medevac people. What's this? Who's this? Like look on his face. Remind you of anybody? Yeah, you're my inspiration. I saw that picture. I saw the look on his face. I'm like, that's Jason. I had to change the name. Um, so on the day that we that you guys are gonna encounter Chris, he was out climbing with some friends, and you know when this picture was taken. He had no idea what he was in store for. Search and rescue gets the call. Uh, it's this time of year, about 10, 20 more, and fall and climb a broken leg. Um, he's about 90 minutes from the best access point uh, to where he was climbing. Okay. What complications can you expect? What equipment do you think you'll need? Hypothermia frostbite. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> right? We don't really know, right? But you can't drag. You're probably not going to drag your monitor, your cardiac monitor, you know, up the hill. You have your stokes. You have whatever equipment you need to potentially rope this guy down from where he is. Your sporting equipment. Maybe some narcotics. Right? You're going to take minimal equipment. So when you get to him, you find this gentleman open fracture right ankle. DP pulses are absent. Fractured left hip fin. Other physical assessment is unremarkable. 
He's alert, oriented, appropriate, had a helmet on, helmet's intact, he didn't hit his head. He's got, he's neurologically intact. Um, you don't have to worry about spinal precautions. Um, it's just these two um, lung bones or extremity injuries. <coughs> priorities. What are your priorities with these, <coughs> these injuries? Okay, I hear some whispering. Perfusion is Perfusion or perfusion? Perfusion, what? Tell me what? Perfusion. You don't have any pulses, so you're going to have to straighten that out before you can get it out of there. Yeah. <clears throat> anybody any, anybody had, had a severely dislocated joint before? Yeah. Well, how did you feel when they reduced it? Didn't bother you. Didn't bother you. <laughs> I, I had a, I, I remember several years ago finding a patient out of Eldorado Canyon who had something similar to this. Uh, open fracture of his uh, right ankle where he fell and he caught the wall. And we flew to Denver Health and to watch those residents there reduce this ankle because he had he had absent pulses. He was so tight in his ankle that the resident who was, who was a big guy was like pulling with all he could to try and get this ankle straight before they then reduced it. He was working. Fortunately, they dissociated the guy who didn't remember that. But I thought, oh my God, that was so brutal. But that's all they did. They basically uh, exaggerate the, the, the degree, uh, whichever the way the ankle is, to kind of relieve the, the any binding point on the joint, pull, and then realign. It's awful. But you're right, yeah, this guy's going to lose his foot. Not only is it the time that he's already been up there, but it's the time to get a package and the time to get it out. You've got to reduce that foot. Otherwise, he's going to lose it. So reduce the ankle fracture, stabilize the injuries, and manage pain during extrication. All right. <laughs> I know, isn't that good? Uh, so kind of, right? Stable. He's going to keep breathing. He's not going to drop his blood pressure. Right? You can give him a dissociative dose, reduce that injury, you're going to have 5 to 20 minutes of full dissociation. Somebody's probably going to have to be at the patient's um, you know, head, monitoring his respiration, monitoring for some kind of secretions. Maybe they, they have these um, portable, they look like portable pulse oxes. It's just for capnography. Maybe you throw a little capno cannula on there and plug that in. You can monitor their waveform. You can monitor their respirations. Maybe you've got your airway equipment in case you do need to intubate this person. But the studies show that this doesn't happen. Associate the guy, reduce the ankle. That's not a problem. Not going to lose his foot now. You've got time now to get him to get his, uh, uh, his other leg splinted, get him into the stokes, get him ready to move down the hill before he starts waking up. Then you can follow that up with your analgesic dose. Talked about 0.3 milligrams per kilo, infusion over 10 to 15 minutes, zero side effects. This is what I mean. This is what the studies have shown. I can't remember all the numbers because I didn't put. Um, I didn't put them all in here specifically, but you can look at um, this paper down here, American College of Emergency Physicians Optimizing Treatment for Acute Pain in Emergency Department. They look at um, 0.1, and running it over um, over 10 to 15 minutes, and they are zero side effects. No apnea, no hypersalivation, no laryngeal spasm, no, um, no drops in blood pressure, no emergency phenomenon. They get great long-term analgesia, right? for in a couple cases up to four hours post uh, the end of the, uh, the administration of the, of the infusion. <clears throat> That's going to get him down the hill. Is that a single agent? Single agent, yeah. So the other thing I wanted to say about this, benefit, minimal gear required, less drug to carry, 
If you're dosing somebody with fentanyl, one milligram per kilo, let's just make it easy, right? 100 kilo person, that's not easy for little search and rescue guys. It's 100, it's 100 mics. That's one little, one little ampule, right? How many of those are you going to have to carry if you're going to go up into the backcountry? What if you had to stay overnight? Right? That's, that was the whole purpose of this picture. What if you had to stay overnight with that person? And I'm going to need ketamine. What's that? I'm going to need some ketamine. I mean, our ketamine vials are 500, 500 milligrams per vial, right? If you're giving 0.3 milligrams per kilo and you're getting sustained uh, pain relief, a 100 kilo guy, that's 30 milligrams. That's like 16 doses to carry one vial. It's a whole lot less to carry. Just something to think about. I know. And if you are going to be giving uh, opioids on top of uh, on top of ketamine, you can use the less opioids. So if you are part of a search and rescue team and you're you're having to spend 24 hours out in the you know overnight trying to get somebody out of a, a tough area, you're going to be able to manage their their pain in your own. I don't know. I don't, I don't judge. Um, you know, for for longer using less medications. All right. This is Diane. Diane's 43 years old. Mother of three. <clears throat> right off the road, she's on home from, uh, on her way home from dropping her kids off at ballet or whatever. Uh, semi truck crosses the center line, runs her off the road. On scene, she's unresponsive, intubated in the field, taken to the local ER. Taking the blue, can't see that at all. CT, CT scan showed large subarachnoid hemorrhage with midline shift. Decision is made to transport her to the local trauma center. Helicopter is flown. Patients prepared for transport. She's intubated. When the crew arrives, she's intubated. She's on the bench. She's got uh, head contusions, facial fractures, no other significant <coughs> injuries other than some minor abrasions here and there. The observation notes: she's on propofol, dripping 20 mics per kilo per minute. Patient's adequately sedated. You know where this is going. <laughs> Vitals and breath sounds clear bilaterally. Good chest rise, pupils and pearl. Blood pressure is good. Heart rate's good. Respiration is good. Hmm? For now. For now. Yeah. During transport, patient becomes more restless, bucking the tube, negative dope. I mean, you do your dopamonic, everything's good. Heart rate jumps to 140, fentanyl is given without effect. Propofol is still 20 mics per kilogram. Thoughts? What are you guys going to do? If this is the back of the ambulance, what are you guys going to do? Because it's a ketamine lecture? Or because it really was? Yeah. I mean, what are your options, right? We're going to increase the propofol, probably. In this situation, here's what was done. Propofol was increased. What happened? BP hit the floor. Now, this was actually a, a scenario that uh, transported that I did. So that's why I come back to this. Propofol is then titrated down, fluids and pressors are started. Patient arrives at the, at the receiving hospital, BP in the 90s, under sedated, bucking the tube, having a difficult time keeping her uh, sedated. Patient ends up trachean vent, discharged long term rehab for, an, you know, for um, uh, significant brain injury. Um, was, it, was it from her initial insult? Who knows? Could it, but the, the hypotension definitely wasn't helping her, right? We know that even a single bout of hypertension uh, in, you know, increases the patient's uh, mortality and morbidity significantly. Right? So when we are treating these patients with these head injuries, closed head injuries, whether 
you know, from trauma or stroke, whatever, we have to be making sure that we are keeping them, uh, their blood pressure adequate to perfuse those organs so that they're not suffering these hypertensive events. I put this in here because um, stress transport increases, uh, right, I already talked about this thing. Transport increases metabolism. I have no proof of this. It just seems to be a trend that I personally have seen. <coughs> Alternative option could be ketamine, 0.5 to 1.5 milligrams per kilo. Right? It's going to keep their blood pressure up with the sympathetic stimulation. It improves cerebral blood flow. You have people, uh, you know, there used to be this big argument that, oh, you can't give, can't give ketamine to these head injury patients because it increases their ICP. Well, that's not actually true. Hemodynamically stable, improves cerebral blood flow, no significant effect on ICP. Here's a study that was done where they looked at um, ICPs. On the left, you have patients, um, these are all, I think this was like a study of, 82 events. Okay. The left graph shows um, uh, ICP, cerebral perfusion pressures, and mean arterial blood pressures, um, uh, and how they responded after ketamine was given. Okay. You can see ketamine was given here. ICP dropped. Cerebral perfusion pressure increased. Mean arterial pressure decreased. Here's the big one that's affecting um, our brain. Over here, same, basically the same thing. These are patients who um, were given ketamine before going in for a, what they call described as a potentially distressing intervention. Same thing. ICP still dropped. Cerebral perfusion pressures still went up or maintained. And their uh, mean arterial pressure basically maintained. So what I'm trying to say is if anybody ever tells you you cannot give ketamine to a, a head injury patient, that has been debunked time and time again. It does not, it does not uh, increase ICP. If it does, it's so minimal that the, the cere improved cerebral perfusion pressures and cerebral blood flow um, counteracts that. They actually get better um, brain perfusion. All right, a couple things. What's new? <clears throat> Hazel, five-year-old, um, past medical history of epilepsy. See little girl here. Ketamine for refractory or super-refractory status seizures. Status seizures defined as anything lasting greater than five minutes. You get a call for a seizure, you get there, patient's still seizing, it's status. We treat it. Right? They used to say, give it five minutes, patient doesn't stop, then we treat it. The assumption now is, if they're still seizing by the time you get there, they're, they're in status. And we need, that. we need to treat that. What is refractory? Refractory seizures is anything that doesn't respond to first or second line medications. So, your benzo. Typically what I've heard um, uh, ER docs do is they'll give two doses two big doses of a benzo, and they'll move to propofol. Other medications that they may give uh, might be something like a Keppra. Um, they'll do a lower dose of Keppra. If the patient's still seizing after first and second line therapy, that's considered refractory. Super refractory, greater than 24 hours. The studies that I looked at um, in order to validate the effectiveness of ketamine for refractory seizures um, had a mean duration of seizures of like two and a, uh, three and a half days. I cannot imagine letting somebody sit there and just seize for three and a half days. Before they went, let's try ketamine. They give ketamine, seizure stopped. Ketamine wears off, patient starts to seize again. Uh, intensivist goes, what the heck do I do? They give ketamine again, seizure stops. How do I kind of treat We know that permanent brain tissue damage starts to happen after 30 minutes of seizing. And according to the Nemesis data, which I pulled, I can only get access to data from 2010 and 2011, so hopefully this has improved. The average time for EMS from EMS activation to arrival at the emergency department, 35 minutes. 
So if we have a patient who is actively seizing, by the time we get them to the ER, they've already started to sustain uh, brain, permanent brain injury. It's up to us in the pre-hospital setting. Uh, it's up to you guys in the pre-hospital setting to take care of these, these, uh, these seizures aggressively. You need to aggressively treat them with benzos. If you don't have anything other than benzos, and it's not a, uh, a preeclampsic seizure or a clampsic seizure, you might consider talking to your physicians about the possibility and the feasibility of giving them an induction dose of ketamine. Right? If they're still seizing and you need to protect their airway, what are you going to do? Induction dose ketamine. Might just sit there and wait, see what happens. All right, there's a whole bunch of um, neurotransmitters in the brain. Gamma, uh, gamma amino uretic acid, GABA, is one of them. N methyl D aspartate, this is NMDA, this is another one of those neurotransmitters in the brain. Here's why they think ketamine is effective for uh, treatment of refractory and super refractory seizures. <clears throat> Sorry, you can't really see this. GABA receptor activation. These are the GABA receptors that are in the, in the, in the nervous system, in the brain, that are responsible for, uh, or that are activated that we, we target when we're giving benzodiazepines um, to counteract uh, seizures. Okay? Benzodiazepines come in, basically shuts down this channel. GABA receptor activates this channel. GABA is what's activated by alcohol. GABA is a suppressive receptor, okay? So, if you read some of the textbooks, they'll actually say um, that we <coughs> blocked GABA to induce like a, a, a decreased mental status. That's actually inaccurate. By activating GABA, that causes a decrease in mental status. Okay? So all your benzos, your propofols, your capers, they work on GABA. What happens is, as the seizure progresses, the, why is this going? As the seizure progresses, what happens is these GABA receptors start to become less sensitive, their activity starts to decline, and what happens is these NMDA receptors will translocate to the surface of the neural cells, and they become hyperactive. Right. So now the NMDA receptors, the, N uh, the NMDA um, uh, channels, these are excitatory channels. And so now you've got what once was a suppressive cell, or, which are, are this, uh, a uh, suppressive um, channel on the, on the cells um, being replaced by an excitatory channel. And so now you've got all this, all these ions flowing through here and it just hyper stimulates the nerve cells. And so now we go in, we get benzos, the GABA receptors are desensitized and we've got this increase, this upregulation of the NMDA receptors. We can then hit them with an NMDA receptor blocker, or you know, like that, block that that site, and now that breaks the, the seizure. That's the that's what they think is going on when we give ketamine to these seizure patients. So ketamine affecting uh, ketamine affecting versus suppression of refractory and super refractory seizures. Um, Ketamine is effective as first-line medication for suppression in 14 or 17 patients. Small cohort, small N. We don't have any large-scale studies just yet, um, but published in um, Clinical Neural News, this is an uh, online site um, that kind of reports what's being published in the Journal of Clinical Neurology, and this was, uh, this was what I found, the statistic that I found. Four out of 17 patients who received first-line ketamine had suppression of their 
seizures. So I bring that up as a, a, a theoretical, a possible alternative um, to just, oh, well, I'm giving them benzos and then they're, and they're not responding. I'm just going to take them into the ER, intubate them, and let the docs handle them. Because by the time you get to the ER, they may have already sustained permanent brain damage. Okay? And this is uh, what this study showed. One milligram followed by two milligram per kilo infusion, uh, per hour infusion was, was effective at uh, bursts, what we call it, term burst suppression. Okay. What about ketamine drugs? Say again? Is there any precautions for ketamine in drugs? In drugs. Chromatic drugs or suspected alcohol on board. Just, you were talking a little bit about GABA receptors. Right. Well, they're completely different receptor sites. But I would suspect... I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I'll just say I don't know. If you want to email me, I'm happy to look it up and, and find out an answer for you. I can look it up too. Yeah. I just didn't know. No, that's a good question. I don't know. If there was maybe a higher instance of apnea, or maybe took more dose or less, or yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's a sympathetic simulation, so sympathomimetic, so maybe it would be less. I don't know. Maybe it would have no effect. Be interesting to look up. Uh, asthma. Real quick, this is Lizzie, four years old, less than dollars for a family. History of asthma. Persistent asthma attack despite medications. That is the definition of refractory status asthmaticus. So we've gotten their, their, uh, their nebulizer. That's not effective, it's not helping. Uh, they have their standard therapy, continuous nebs, steroids, epimag, from the bolus, BiPAP. None of it's working. There have been, in, there are some studies that are small that have shown that patients who have received ketamine as first line, I shouldn't say first line because you're, you're still gonna do your continuous NEBS, you're still gonna run, you know, do your IM epi, you're still gonna do your, your steroids, but ketamine has actually been effective as a rescue therapy to prevent intubation. Patients who they said, okay, nothing's working, we are going to have to intubate this patient um, and continue them on the NEB. They've given them a large bolus of ketamine and it has, uh, within a couple minutes, broken the asthma attack. Whether that is an increase in uh, catecholamines from the sympathomimetic effects of the ketamine itself, or it is another mechanism of action, they haven't quite vetted that out yet. Something to think about. Last thing I'll leave you guys with, um, this is a gentleman, I changed his name, his name is, I use his name as Marco. This was a case that I had um, down in New Mexico a number of years ago. This gentleman had a history of depression and um, he was from the reservation and uh, a history of attempted suicide, suicide uh, attempts. Uh, on the night that I met him, he had taken a 30 out six, put it underneath his chin, pulled the trigger. Basically blew off the entire front of his face. I got to him, I made contact, he made eye contact, he was, for all intents and purposes, GCS 15. He could follow, he could track, there was nothing. You couldn't even follow bombs, right? There was just so much mess in his face um, that my partner and I very quickly made a determination that if we tried to RSI this gentleman, he was probably going to drown in his own blood and we were not going to be effective in getting, getting to him. And we would then have to move to surgical crime. Down in New Mexico, they're very weird about surgical airways. Um, to be able to justify the inevitable surgical airway was a very difficult thing for us 
to do down there. So for us to say, this gentleman doesn't meet standard criteria for surgical airway, which is can't oxygenate, can't ventilate, um, I'm going to surgical crime. We, we didn't have that option with him. He was breathing well enough on his own by sitting forward and letting the blood drain. We handed him a yank collar, you know, cleaning, cleaning his airway that way. So our decision was we were going to haul ass with the closest trauma center, uh, the closest ER, not the trauma center, the closest ER, and get some assistance with securing his airway and then proceed to the trauma center from there. We were able to sit the patient up, we were able to spray his face with epi, we were able to pack it as best as we could um, with gauze to try and control the bleeding. We handed it in the egg hour and we hauled ass with the local ER. On short final to the ER, this is at night, uh, under green lights in the helicopter, he arrested. Respiratory arrest, the cerebral pulse. My partner immediately reached over, we were in a Augusta 109 where that in that particular aircraft, I sit facing aft, my partner sits facing um, forward, and the patient is sitting right here, his head sitting up right like this. I saw the patient do this, and we're like, oh crap, we're in trouble. My partner immediately reaches over, grabs his face, tries to open up his airway, tries to digitally intubate him while I'm getting out the crank, uh, the crank equipment. I ended up standing up over this gentleman doing uh, my first ever surgical crank at night, goggles on my head, bouncing off the ceiling, um, you know, on short final to the pad, get the tube in, um, and go inside. And the door slides open, it's my medical director, and he's like, oh, you cranked him, sweet, let's go inside. So this is what he looked like. What this is is akin to that the, that the physician put into his mouth to try to tampen on some of the bleeding. Um, you can kind of see the, the you actually can't see the pilot in the but then surgical other, surgical other down. This was, there was no way we were actually gonna be able to try and get a tube in this guy. In retrospect, uh, we did a root cause analysis. The guy, uh, the guy ended up dying. We did get, uh, we did get him stabilized. We got him flown down to the trauma center, and he ended up dying. The root cause analysis we did after the fact for any major incident was um, what came out of it was: Did you consider the fact? Did I put it in here? Did you consider doing an awake surgical crack with Kevin? No, of course I did. Down in New Mexico, the way they look at it is any. Any RSI, uh, drug-facilitated uh, RSI, must be full RSI, parallel and everything. But they don't consider a surgical airway RSI. So the thought was, is keep him sitting up when he's hemodynamically stable, we have good space in, in the back of the ambulance, he's still got a blood pressure, give him a reduction dose of ketamine, keep him breathing, and then perform a surgical airway, place the tube, now we know we've got a secured airway, now we can pack his face as much as we want, can control the bleeding, um, and there's no risk whatsoever of, of him bleeding to death because that was his only injury. He bled to death from this. Okay? He bled to death from his facial injuries. So I take that with me and I, and I, and I share that because it may not necessarily be you know, the first thing that you think of, but if you have this patient with an inevitable surgical airway and you're wondering, is RSI the best option with this person? And you, you're, you're, the decision is no, the next best thing might be to perform an awake surgical airway. It's something you're going to have to talk to your physician advisor about and, and see if that's something that might even be a possibility. But in that case, that would that would have been the best bet for him. It probably would have saved his life. They could have done reconstruction and he would have done uh, okay. Um, so take home points: ketamine derivable, produces analgesia and sedation, IM, uh, IV intranasal, quick, effective. <coughs> Does not elevate ICP. I'm not going to go through all this. Talk a lot about this. You know, 
this is kind of funny. It's definitely a polarizing uh, medication. I hope that this presentation has gotten you thinking a little bit more about ketamine. I hope it's to dispel some of the fears that you may have about giving it, overdosing it, underdosing it, um, and whatever. And probably not a good thing to give it to your patient who's sitting in the waiting room. Just saying. What, what questions do you have? Yes, sir. The beginning you talked about chapter two and the critical care paramedic scope yes where it's silent on the indications where it doesn't say you can only use it for these three things yes sir does that mean that it's more apt to be used for novel type administrations like you talked about with the asthma and the um the seizures and stuff? it's a hundred percent up to your your medical director I say it's a local yes event. yep they get they gave that broad if you read the other statements that i highlighted it basically says you can do it, but it has to be written in your protocol, and your physician advisor has to have uh, training in place to to, you know, to teach you on how to use it for the particular indications. That's why this is more or less a discussion to open up your minds, get you thinking about how else you might use it, and go have some discussions. Because all the discussions that we hear so far is how do we use how do we use this drug in the OR, in the ICU, in the ED. But nobody's talking about how do we really translate this and extrapolate the, the research to apply to the transport and hospital environment. That's what I want to really do here. What other questions do you have? None? You talked about um, increased cardiac ischemia. Yeah. Being, being a risk. Um, so you got a patient that's CHS, you try BiPAP, you try to stabilize. Maybe you have a blood pressure washout, and you know you're moving towards RSI. Mm -hmm. um, ketamine versus ketamidate. That risk with the cardiac ischemia type thing. What, what do you have to say about that? I think what it really comes down to is: is this a patient who is acutely decompensating because of maybe an, an MI, or is this somebody who's got a history of chronic uh, chronic CHF? I think if this is a patient who's more acute, I'm going to be a little bit more concerned about the risk of, of ketamine. But remember, it's also a, a relative contraindication. It's something to say, you know, to think about. If I give this and I increase their heart rate just a little and I increase their myocardial attitude, is this going to make them worse? If this is a, a acute, acute flash pulmonary edema, right, you're, you're, which typically is going to be your um, hypertensive CHF patients, the SCAPE patients, the, the sympathetic crashing acute pulmonary edema patient, um, then those patients, are, that's probably going to be some kind of an acute coronary event where I would avoid ketamine. But this, if this is somebody who's got a long, long history of CHF where now they have some kind of exacerbation because they missed their meds or something like that, I might be a little bit more okay doing it. But it's going to be an individual decision you're going to have to kind of make the judgment call. Is that increased catecholamine response going to be beneficial and maybe keep their blood pressure up because they're hypotensive? Or is it going to, is it going to have a negative effect because they're in front of them? Does that answer your question? Kind of. It's going to be a very case-by-case -case basis. Anything else? All right, guys. Enjoy your beers. Anybody wants to email me?
That's all I have for this episode. I want to thank you for tuning in. I want to invite you to come on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show. That way you'll never miss new episodes of the podcast. If you have a question that you'd like featured on the podcast, head on over to askflightcrit.com and you can leave me a message right there from your smartphone or computer. Thanks so much. And remember, education is good, but excellence through collaboration is so much better. Fly safe and live well, and I'll catch you on the next episode of the Tips from Crypt podcast. Bye for now.